You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. This episode, hosted by Egan Dean, explores recent developments in trans studies, a crucial area for scholarship and teaching in 19th century cultural history. Hi, my name is Egan Dean. I want to talk with y'all today about trans studies and the 19th century in the U.S. Now more than ever, questions and opinions about trans people like me, our history and our rights are on the lips of pundits, activists, and everyday folks around the country. One of the things you'll hear in opposition to transgender acceptance is some claim that transness is new or ahistorical. This rumor has just recently become a part of law. On July 8, 2023, the Sixth Circuit Court upheld Tennessee's ban on physician-recommended gender-affirming medical care, specifically because trans medical care is not, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. This echoes the Dobbs decision, which struck down Roe v. Wade, and which frequently turned to 19th century history and tradition for evidence against certain sorts of reproductive care. While the specific treatments at issue may be newer than, say, the Constitution, but in many cases older than penicillin, the existence of trans ways of being goes deep into American history. This refusal of trans folks' history comes in a time of starkly rising violence against trans and queer folks, a physical, economic, and legislative violence that has only ever been in abeyance from the time of Black trans sex worker Mary Jones's arrest in 1836 to 2021's record-setting year for trans murders, primarily of women of color. The long and ongoing history of trans life sits in contrast to a firm cultural and political refusal to acknowledge that transness has any history at all. Now, I disagree with that Tennessee ruling, for one, because I don't think that a way of life or an identity has to have a history in order for folks to have rights. But the fact is that trans does have a history, and that history, or more rightly speaking, that range of histories and sorts of storytelling about it, desperately needs more study. That's where you come in. This is a crucial time for us as scholars of American cultural history to get involved, not only to try to correct all the historical disinformation that's out there about trans, genderqueer, and gender nonconforming folks, but also to pay new attention to historical trans storytelling. So many of the ideas about gender and its origins that are current today arise from the 19th century. The 19th century is also an especially rich time in the history of gender, in which the religious and legal structures policing gender roles start to give way to emergent sex science. When the peak and fall of racial enslavement splintered gendered rights across color lines, and when radically different cosmologies of settler and indigenous gender cultures made contact and struggled under colonial systems of power. Current efforts across sport and other organizations to draw strict hormonal lines between genders build on emergent 19th century gonadal theories of sex without learning from their later innovations. There's also a clear historical through line between 19th century characterizations of trans life 
as a form of perversion and deceit, and contemporary fear-mongering over trans folks' right to public life. I want to take some time in this episode to invite you to think more about trans studies, how it can be incorporated into your teaching, why it might matter to your scholarship, and most of all, why now. There's the first answer I've already given you, that trans studies matters now because trans life in the U.S. is in a state of emergency. At the same time, these conversations will only become more fraught for us as scholars whose research into the origins, meanings, histories, and arts of intersectionally marginalized communities are under attack from state governments. I hope this episode will appeal not only to those who are already interested in teaching and learning about trans folks, but also to those interested in the ongoing influence of 19th century culture and law on gender-based oppression in the U.S. Both the Dobbs decision and the disproportionate danger of trans women of color show how trans rights, reproductive rights, women's rights, and anti-racism are very much bound up in the same struggle over making meaning of gender in history. Another reason to do trans studies now is that trans studies is blossoming so richly in this moment and is understudied in our period. Only a handful of monographs in trans studies touch the 19th century at all. What an opportunity. Historical trans studies not only helps us talk about the histories of gender nonconforming people, but also gives us new ways to think about gender and the way it works in the world. What new stories and expressive forms are available when we shift our frames of thinking about gender and about transgression? There's something exciting, even maybe nourishing, about queer and trans storytelling from the past that I think is deeply needed and that scholars of 19th century cultural history can contribute to in new ways. Let's talk about how to get started and how to jump into trans studies responsibly. First, I'm going to spend some time explaining what we talk about when we talk about trans studies. Then I'm going to turn to the impact on trans history on our students. The ever-growing appetite for representative history is intersecting with the increasing visibility of trans young people in our classrooms. I'll speak with Peyton Thomas, a writer perhaps best known to you for his podcast about queer and trans themes in Little Women, and whose debut young adult novel tackles trans discourse from a student's perspective. Then I'll talk a little bit about how I teach Margaret Fuller's 1845 Woman in the 19th Century through a trans studies lens. Then I will offer an overview of some of the exciting new work in 19th century trans studies that is being incubated right now, including both excerpts from the April 2023 Rutgers Symposium on the Trans 19th Century and interviews with interdisciplinary scholars in the field. Although trans experience is deeply historical, trans studies as a distinct academic field is relatively new. A lot of the work that we would now describe as contributing to trans studies got underway under the aegis of queer theory, gender studies, or Black feminist theory. The relationships among these disciplines and their boundaries or overlaps are up for debate. But in the last 15 years, trans studies has emerged as an increasingly distinct field of study. When we talk about trans studies, we talk not just about people who do now or might in the past have described themselves as trans. And describing the maximal field of thought for trans studies 
Susan Stryker has conceptualized trans studies as attending to people or characters whose experience is meaningfully marked by crossing, shifting, or oscillating away from one's socially assigned gender and its definitional roles, expectations, norms, and appearances. We also think and talk about people who might have called themselves fairies, butch, androgynes, female husbands, or simply in disguise. This is not to say that any of these categories are necessarily superseded by the term transgender or should necessarily be called transgender now. Instead, trans studies asserts that we have more to learn from putting these lives in conversation than in insisting on their isolation. Trans studies is also invested in understanding the origin and history of ideas about gender, which shape cultural understandings of what gender is, who has it, and what it means. A lot of these answers can help us think more about American structures of gendered, colonial, and racial power that emerged in the 19th century. At the core of trans studies, though, are the experiences of trans folks. That's why I want to start my pitch for how to do trans studies with teaching. As colleges and universities have implemented more policies in recent years that allowed many trans students more access and more dignity, we as teachers begin to see more students who are comfortable identifying themselves as trans in our classroom. Like any student, they crave access to art and history that helps them make sense of themselves and their worlds. So my book is called uh, Both Sides Now, named it after the Joni Mitchell song, We Love Joni. This is Peyton Thomas, a journalist, a novelist, and an amateur historian of transness. His debut novel, Both Sides Now, was written for young adults and met praise in the New York Times and the Washington Post. I wanted to explore the question of like the ways that trans people are sort of asked to constantly advocate for just like their right to exist, period. And the value of debate, but also the limitations of debate in, in terms of a high school debater who is a trans boy and he makes it all the way to the national debate championships only to learn that um, if he wants to win, he'll have to advocate against trans rights. Thomas says that he started writing both sides now during a turning point in his transition when he was reflecting on how far he'd come and what might be next in terms of his gender and identity. He wanted to reach students who were looking to literature to understand their experience, but the response was complicated. So I, I wrote it for myself first and foremost, um, but then I really, I wrote it for trans kids the audience response has been difficult. Um, about two weeks after it came out, there was a uh, an alt-right anonymous message board kind of got a hold of it and started review bombing it and leaving just, just very negative comments, uh, death threats, uh, like grooming accusations on, on um, social media and on book review sites. And, and that's really colored just the entire experience of publication for me. But I think the one thing that really does help with um kind of the fallout of that is when like like trans kid comes up to me or sends me an email through my agent is like this helped me it made me feel good about myself um it gave me kind of a reason to keep going that's that's really what it's all about both sides now is being read by students and young writers including toronto public school students whose creative work thomas workshopped as a visiting author this year uh, and that's that's always just like a super fun experience. Um, 
these kids are very talented. They are, they are really strong up and coming. And it's also just cool to see like much more self-assured and um, forthright in their own identity than I ever was at that age. So yeah, very, very cool. Now, Thomas is turning to a new project, a novel for adults that adapts Louisa May Alcott's 1868 novel, Little Women, with trans readings in mind. He returned to Little Women after watching the Greta Gerwig film from 2019 and appreciating the space that this adaptation made for gender play. Thomas's new book in progress has also spawned a very popular podcast called Joe's Boys that has featured actors, pop culture writers, and scholars from Gregory Eisline, current president of Louisa May Alcott Society, to Susan Stryker, a founding name in trans studies. Like most of us scholars of the 19th century, Thomas started this project to share his excitement about what he found in his research and the ideas he developed building on previous queer readings of Alcott from scholars like Gus Stadler and Catherine Kent. Thomas's intervention offers compelling evidence that Louisa May Alcott's life and work were marked with gender nonconformity and a masculine self-concept. In other words, that Little Women can be read as a trans story. Basically, any time that Both Sides Now was in edits or I wasn't actively writing it, I would be reading biographies of Alcott or looking at kind of different works of, of literary criticism about Little Women going through the archives, doing Houghton and the Concord Free Public Library and handling the original manuscript pages of Little Women by myself. It was very special. The Joe's Boys podcast grew out of... Um, one, a desire to share some of the, at that point, bountiful Alcott-related research that I had at this point that wasn't going to make it into the book because the book was a work of fiction. And also to kind of discuss the many, many ways in which like queerness and transness show up in the original text of Little Women. Um, and it's, it's been a wonderful experience so far. I asked him if he thought students' appetite for trans art and trans history has increased and he took me back to his days as a transgender student. Well, so I don't think I don't think the appetite is new. I remember being a little a really little kid and growing up in Vancouver, we have this gorgeous library downtown that's like shaped like the Coliseum. It's just stunning. And I would go there on weekends by myself and just go exploring and I remember being like 12 years old and running into um transgender warriors, right? And and just being so shocked that like uh, Joan of Arc could be seen as transgender it was such a foreign concept to me at the time. But that, you know, that's, I, I would imagine that's like 20 plus years ago at, at this point. And, and people were having these conversations and discussing whether it was fitting to call these people uh, transgender way, way before my time, right? I think even with Alcott, like people have been having these discussions for, like decades, it's not, it's very much not new. Um, and, you know, if we consider Alcott in his own time saying, I feel as though I am a man put by some freak of nature into a woman's body, I, like <laughs> this isn't a new conversation by any means. Um, I, I feel very lucky to have kind of so many gigantic shoulders to stand on. But I, I think what is new is the understanding of this as a trans text. And that's exactly what can be so refreshing about teaching 19th century texts from a trans perspective. The opportunity to open new conversations and wrestle with existing puzzles can have great payoff in the classroom. 
Christopher Luby's 2017 anthology, The Man Who Thought Himself a Woman, offers many 19th century texts that are worth revisiting. For instance, Constance Finnamore Wilson's 1876 short story, Philippa, can shape classroom conversation about both the northern white gaze on postbellum Creole communities, as well as fresh interpretations of Philippa's gender nonconformity and her inability or refusal to distinguish between white men and women. I like to teach both classic texts like Little Women or Hospital Sketches for their frolicking delight in transmasculine roles, as well as more recently recovered work like Alice Dunbar Nelson's story, His Heart's Desire, and Julia Ward Howe's Lawrence Manuscript. As I've said, trans studies lenses are not only interested in gender nonconforming people, but also the history of how we as a society think about gender and gender nonconformity. One of the texts that creates the most conversation about trans history in my queer 19th century course is Margaret Fuller's Woman in the 19th Century. Fuller's argument for the fundamental equality of men and women is built on her assertion that individuals express a wide variety of gender expressions, which she calls preponderances. I asked students to read selections like this one. Male and female represent the two sides of the great radical dualism, but in fact, they are perpetually passing into one another. Fluid hardens to solid, solid rushes to fluid. There is no wholly masculine man, no purely feminine woman. I asked students to consider this passage from Fuller and ask, how does woman in the 19th century talk about gender in ways that are familiar to you or maybe new? How does she talk about the relationship between the body and mind in terms of gender? Do you think she would understand or endorse the concept of gender identity? How does her focus on androgyny in the book fit into her feminism? Why do indigenous women appear in the text only as examples and never as addressees? And I ask you, listeners, how does woman in the 19th century unsettle our assumptions? Certainly the Sixth Circuit Court's assumption that everyone has agreed about the stability of binary gender, about the meaning of gender through American history. These are the kind of questions that we can open through teaching texts from a trans perspective or through opening trans questions in the classroom. For this last section, I want to introduce you to a few folks whose work is pushing 19th century trans studies forward. These scholars come from American studies, gender and queer studies, history and literature departments, and more. Many take a broad historical stance beginning with the 19th century and working toward today, while others focus more closely on earlier colonial and 19th century periods. One scholar on the cutting edge is Dr. Rebecca Mulholland. I'm a fourth year assistant professor of history at the California State University, Sacramento. So my areas of research, I do black histories and I use that plurally because the people I look at and talk about are from different parts of the world. And so our sameness, that Pan-Africanism, 
an ideology that I ascribe to that's our commonness, but we have so many different things that make us Black in our different cultures. I also do queer histories, broadly speaking, and my dissertation does speak to trans histories, gender nonconforming histories, and I'm also a public historian. I emphasize African women's labor as well as African American and Black histories. Their work stretches from the early 19th century through the 20th. They are currently revising their dissertation, which uses the 19th century as a springboard. So I went to the University of Memphis for my doctorate. And while there, a couple of my professors, they hosted a symposium one weekend where historians who do the 1866 Memphis massacre were discussing race relations in post-Civil War Memphis and the lives of free Blacks in the city before and right after this 1866 riot. And the result was dozens of African-Americans were killed. And so they discussed the testimonies of freed women who from May 1st through the 3rd were assaulted by like angry white mobs. And one of these testimonies came from a woman named Frances Thompson. And she was a formerly enslaved woman who discussed being raped during this event. And so Congress came to Memphis and they were um, hosted by a hotel and they recorded and listened to the testimonies of these women. And so because Frances Thompson being one of the earliest gender nonconforming individuals testifying in Congress made this really important. This work on Memphis, they said, is prompting them to think more of queer and trans studies in terms of city studies and the queer and racial histories of space. It also pushed them as a historian to think differently about sources. Trans histories is so unique and so important in that you have to redefine what is an archive and really think creatively about where you find these works and where you find people. And I found them in magazines and in church records and, of course, jail records. And, you know, I found them in cinema and I found them at the Schomburg. Mulholland, like many of us in trans studies, invests in this work in part because its urgency is felt politically and personally. My scholarship afforded me the opportunity to learn about, you know, where I come from, you know, uh, whether I'm directly related to people or just have like this commonness because they're queer to what were their experiences and what did they go through to make it so that today I could be, you know, gender nonconforming and be pretty safe and open about it. Um, so it's still a journey for me. And like, I think this dissertation really afforded me the opportunity to learn a lot about myself. And I know we described like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera as so brave and courageous and things like that. And yes, they were, but they were also just trying to live their best lives in dangerous situations. And while my life isn't that dangerous, it's still for some reason, legislators are trying to send us back, you know, and we're trying to backslide. And so it still brings up questions of like safety and things like that. It does help me to continue to fight and know what I'm fighting for and understand the legacy and the history behind that. Like Dr. Mulholland explains, trans studies also has community and political ties. I recently spoke to historian Dr. Jen Mannion about how trans scholarship intersects with their activism for trans liberation. You might know about them from their 2020 book, Female Husbands, which looks at historical records and periodicals from the UK and the US 
to theorize the category of husband as a gendered role that could be accessed through social ties and labor, including by people who were understood as female by certain structures of power. I'm a historian of gender sexuality in the U.S. with a primary focus on the 19th century. Right now, I'm collaborating with my partner, Jessica Hallam, actually, on an overview of the treatment, resistance, experiences of LGBTQ people and American medicine, really from the colonial era till today. I asked about their recent activism in the face of the Moms for Liberty conference in Philadelphia, which promoted limits on academic and pedagogical freedom regarding race, gender, and sexuality, especially in literature and history. I think, you know, even from the time I was an undergrad, there was always a synergy between, you know, scholarship, research, what I was learning in the classroom, and how that informed things that I was going through personally, things that I was involved in, you know, as a queer feminist activist in the community. So we're pushed to, you know, silo and separate these things that, you know, if you have an activist commitment, you know, maybe your scholarship isn't as quote unquote objective, right? That's something that, you know, we're taught, but I think it's really important, you know, for students, especially, but also for us to keep connecting the dots and going back and forth. What are we learning about movements and activism in the past that can inform how we address, you know, really important hard questions in the present. And so, you know, the Moms for Liberty episode is, you know, I think right in our wheelhouse because they are not just, you know, a right-wing hate group, um, but they are explicitly targeting what gets taught at all levels, you know, of education and claiming themselves as an authority and really pulling out some old tricks, you know, I think from the 19th century and the early 20th century that we thought we had effectively perhaps defeated that, you know, are back in strides, you know, just some really damaging, vile, mean, homophobic, transphobic, sexist, racist tropes. So we have to take them head on. We have to take on what they're doing. We have to fight against what they're saying and, you know, use all of our research and knowledge and expertise and our also the personal experience, you know, of our own lives to say that's not true, you know, we're not going to let it go unchecked, we're not going to sit silently by, you know, while you lie, while you hurt us, while you hurt, you know, queer and trans youth, while you completely, like, destroy public education in America. One of the lead talking points of the conservative anti-trans movement right now is this idea that, you know, being trans is a new phenomenon, that it's, you know, it's it's been created by young people, you know, and that it's it's fleeting, and that now it's time for the grown-ups to kind of step in and assert themselves. And one of the reasons why they're able to get away with that is because very few people know about trans history, and we have a responsibility to educate everyone about them, uh, in no small part to counter, you know, this like really damaging claim that is used right now by the right to create real harm. You know, there are other reasons to do it too. It's it's important, it's cool, it's fun. You know, so many of us, you know, grew up learning about, you know, history that didn't include people like us. And, and it's time to change that. 
learning about other people through history books. You know, I certainly felt this as a young person. It was really validating. You know, it was really informative. It was really uh, empowering for me. And we all deserve that. As Dr. Mannion explains, our need to promote justice extends not only to activism and teaching, but also to scholarship. Having, you know, a wide range of people um, from a wide range of trans experiences and racial, racial class, cultural, ethnic backgrounds, you know, working with this material, I think will just like open up new avenues, things that we haven't thought of or known about. Tra- the trans 19th century record is still overwhelmingly white. And I think there is a need and an imperative and an effort to diversify the available records. In spring 2023, I organized a symposium at Rutgers University called the Trans 19th Century, where I was able to bring together Mannion and other leading thinkers in 19th century trans studies. In our conversations, we thought a lot about transness itself as a puzzle for historical cultural analysis, one which requires us to think about the investments that colonial and white supremacist power structures had and still have in defining and enforcing the stability of binary gender. Emma Heaney, for instance, calls this the dictate of cisness. Here's a clip from the symposium of her talking about trans as a social category. Via its incorporation into bourgeois medical science and adjacent social sciences, the social category also takes on the status as the most visible example of the violation of the modern dictate of cisness. My first book read the effect of this process in modern fiction and, sub- and subsequent theoretical language. <laughs> Today, I want to spend some time thinking about how this process occurred in the 19th century. The key thing to understand about this idea of non-existence of the racial, colonial, and class order is how diverse this operation is based on place. Mark Rifkin, also at the symposium, argued that cisness as an invented and enforced category is a colonially useful one. Here he is talking about a statement from the then Commissioner of Indian Affairs. Morgan's comment, though, suggests less a shift from indigenous genderings to white ones than an absence of gender difference among natives. Indianness, he suggests, lies outside the heterogendered matrix represented by the binary men and women. If native people are something else, such the trajectory of colonial intervention must be toward transforming them into men and women, what is Indianness in this formulation? Or more broadly, how does Indian policy in the late 19th century position indigenous people and peoples as lacking gender? And how does that portrayal position the performance of white cisgender as key to the legitimate occupation of native lands? Jules Gill-Peterson, reading the story of Black trans woman Mary Jones, reads certain means of trans-feminine transition as strategized in response to the material and racial conditions of domestic migration. So sort of drawing inspiration here from John D'Amelio's classic essay, Capitalism and Gay Identity, as well as these Black feminist histories, Indigenous histories, and histories of capitalism and labor, sort of coming to the antebellum era to ask why trans femininity as a mode of public appearance and trans womanhood as an adopted way of life emerged in antebellum cities as a practical matter of managing downward mobility in the wake of these planetary events of dispossession that cleaved populations from both land and kin, forcing their migration to places like New York City 
in search of work. Other speakers ask probing questions about how we talk about transness in history. Kaji Amin, in his paper, was skeptical of the trans historical usefulness of gender identity as a category. This self-reflection was not a skill in which the laboring classes were trained, whether by journaling, responding to sexological questionnaires, or reading or writing memoirs or novels. Core individual selfhood remained the bourgeois mark of distinction it had been devised to be. The sexological process of explaining sex-gender deviance by endowing the white bourgeoisie with an interior sexed or gendered subjectivity would not begin until the late 19th century. It would not be until the mid-20th century that ordinary trans people would be offered a concrete reward in the, in the form of potential access to medical transition if they successfully decided a life marriage with cross-gender gender identity at its center. Greta LaFleur, echoing this concern with historiography, uses histories of self-castration to propose that a transfeminist perspective on historiography can illuminate as much about gender as a category as it does about trans folks specifically. I also want to be very careful to note that a transfeminist historiographic method cannot make or reveal any, any historical figure as trans in the modern sense of the term, or perhaps in any sense of the term. But at the same time, we know that so many of the methods we have for making sense of historical personae who lived at odds with the gendered scriptures of their time are insufficient. It's simply not enough to simply gather all gender non-conforming people under the categoristic shorthand of feminists or queers or rebels or any of the other wide range of other historical descriptors um, that historians have reached for to make sense of these historical figures in the way that they live their lives. What a transcendent historiographic method might offer, however, and I elaborate this point in a piece that um, was just published in the Journal of the Early Republic on historiography, language, and the use of they, them pronouns for historical figures. What they might do is highlight or make more visible the social, political, and otherwise material conditions that produce something that today, to us today, looks like gender or the effect thereof. As you can hear, trans studies in the 19th century is an already robust, though emergent, field. If you're just looking to get your feet wet with trans studies, you can always join Peyton and his guests at the Joe's Boys podcast for a bookish chat. If you want to start incorporating trans history or trans studies perspectives into your research and teaching, there's many resources to get you started. I'll leave you with some recommendations from our guests. I asked them, what should our listeners read first? Ooh, oh my gosh, there's so many. I love Transgender History, Susan Stryker. Um, that was one of the earliest texts for me. C. Riley Snorton's Black on Both Sides, like, you know, not wanting or needing to separate Blackness and transness. Um, and then there was one that came out last year entitled Before We Were Trans, A New History of Gender by Kat Ham. And this uh, examines like what we call trans histories now. And it goes back about 3,500 years. So from antiquity to now, and you get stuff from like Japan and Angola. So you're looking at a global history. And so I think that's one that's like really important because it set the scene on, yeah, humankind, people of all kinds of genders and presentations have always been here, but the terminology is just now catching up to who we are and what we can be and where we're going. Um, and I think that's one of the texts I like to recommend things to students that are more recent. So I think Before We Were Trans is a good one, especially it gives open their eyes to 
all around the world, like we have different cultures and different peoples, and we're always finding ways to be different from each other and divide. But this gender nonconforming thing is a common thread in this book and across thousands of years. Well, honestly, you know, I, I think anything written by Susan Stryker should be the first thing that you read. And, uh, you know, explicitly, I would point them to transgender history because it's both a general historic overview, you know, of trans experiences and communities in the U.S., and it's also an accessible theoretical framework for the language of gender and how gender and sexuality relate to each other and how gender and sexuality are racialized and you know why terminology has changed so dramatically you know over the years and and how we should think critically about that as for my recommendation i think that c19 scholars specifically might enjoy the trans historicities issue of Transgender Studies Quarterly, edited by Leah Devon Nenzev Tortorici, especially for those who are familiar with trans terms and concepts generally, but aren't sure how to think about them from our point of reference in U.S. history. This issue offers several models and provocations for thinking about the past, present, and future of trans in and through cultural history. I hope that hearing from these committed and creative scholars, artists, and activists has offered you some on-ramps into teaching and thinking about trans studies, maybe even engaging some of these frames in your own scholarship on the 19th century. I would like to thank my generous scholarly guests, Rebecca Mulholland and Jen Mannion, as well as the brilliant speakers from the Trans 19th Century Symposium who lent their voices to this episode, Emma Heaney, Mark Rifkin, Jules Gil-Peterson, Kaji Amin, and Greta LaFleur. Peyton Thomas, our special guest from the world of fiction, is putting out fun new episodes all the time, and he and his guests will soon embark on the next book, Little Men. His reimagination of Little Women doesn't have a date yet, but I'm already excited. I'd also like to thank Lizzie Lared, Ashley Ratner, and Ryan Charlton of C19 for shepherding this episode through the production process with such care and encouragement. In the notes for this episode, you can find a collection of links and details for the resources I've mentioned. I can't wait to read what you have to add to the conversation. Some of the interviews in this episode have been edited for length and clarity. Thank you for listening. We are a production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. If you enjoyed this episode or have thoughts, use the hashtag C19podcast on Twitter or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? For details on submitting a proposal, check out our CFP on the C19 website.